Welcome to Media in Transition 7 on the MIT campus, where the world gathered to address a key question affecting all of us. Just how are we coping with the instability of media platforms? The conference was held in May 2011, and along with the academic contribution of hundreds of scholars and the insights of a dozen plenary speakers, the conference was made possible through the financial support of the MIT Communications Forum, Comparative Media Studies, Writing and Humanistic Studies, Literature at MIT, and the Technology and Culture Forum. I'm David Thorburn, director of the MIT Communications Forum. I'd like to welcome you to the beginning, to the start of the uh, uh, seventh Media in Transition conference. Many of the people who have registered for this conference have been at previous conferences. We're happy about that. Uh, and we're, we're, we're happy also, as I noted in the, in the uh, conference welcome uh, uh, in, the, in the program, uh, that we remain such an international event uh, uh, with, with such a large representation of people from outside the United States. The conversations that are generated at these conferences are, in some degree, less scholarly than at other conferences, and we think that that's in some, in some ways a, a great virtue, because the conference aims to bring together uh, not just sc scholars, young and old, from a variety of disciplinary perspectives, which requires that they speak a more common language than the language of their own disciplines, but it also in, uh, encourages the participation of people from the business world and, and media practitioners. Uh, and we even have uh, at, this, at this conference uh, a, a smiley comedian who will be, who will be uh, adding to our, uh, to, to our exhilaration. Uh, uh, what I, what, so my, my main message this morning then, as we, as we kick off the conference, is to encourage people to stay out of the special languages of their disciplines, not only in the conversations they have between sessions, but even in their sessions. In many of the sessions, we've tried to juxtapose scholars from, from different intellectual territories with the idea that that will spark uh, uh, imaginative connections that might not, uh, might not otherwise be possible. My task this morning uh, uh, in, this, in this introductory uh, uh, welcome is essentially that of, a, uh, of, a, of, a, of an MC. And I have two quick announcements and then I would like to introduce our welcoming uh, dignitary, uh, uh, Dean Deborah Fitzgerald from the School of Humanities and Social Science at MIT. Uh, my first announcement is that uh, those of you who, who uh, have a chance to sort of walk in the long corridor uh, next to the area where the registration desks are, We'll see posted on the wall a poster, uh, several posters from the MIT libraries about uh, new collections that have been uh, collections that have been newly digitized. And the one that I want to call your attention to is one I'm particularly happy the library has made time and resources available to create. Uh, the and uh, the the entire activities of the MIT Communications Forum from 1983 through 95 have now been digitized and are available uh, online from the MIT libraries. And if you look out in the halls, you'll, you'll, you'll see a poster that will uh, give the URL and also give certain other ways of instantly accessing the material. We're happy about this uh, archiving uh, of the Communications Forum's of part of the communication forum's history, and we just hope that the platform re will remain stable for a few years. Uh, 
um, second, I'd like to remind everyone here, uh, this is a reminder we might want to repeat at later sessions as well, that uh, as is always the case, there are relatively minor but still some changes to the to the uh, printed program, and that's because some people dropped out at the last moment or there were other reasons for change. Uh, and in consequence of that, this is not the most definitive version of our events. And if you want to double check to make sure everything is on course, you should check the online version of the agenda, which is kept up to date even, even as we're speaking. It's now my great pleasure uh, and honor to introduce my dean, my boss, I guess, uh, Deborah Fitzgerald, a distinguished historian, a prize-winning historian, who for the last few years has been the uh, 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 has been the dean of the School of Humanities and Social Science. She's been an, a, a particularly helpful friend both to CMS and to the Communications Forum, and it's a great pleasure to introduce Deborah Fitzgerald. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, to see you all here today, and and really just to welcome you to some of you welcome you to Cambridge, uh, and some of you all of you to welcome you to this terrific conference. Uh, this is year seven, a great tradition that that has been uh, started at MIT to make sure that those of us in humanities, arts, and social sciences, which is the school that sponsors the program in comparative media studies, to make sure that we are all really on top of what's going on in the world uh, around media studies scholarship and activity, whether it's those of you who are activists, those of you who are in the libraries, those of you who are doing documentary films, those of you who are doing games, whatever it is you're doing, we want to know about it. Uh, we want to make sure that our students know about it, and we want to make sure that MIT remains a hotbed of activity in this genre. It's very important for us here at MIT. Uh, we have so much technology, obviously, uh, and such a grand legacy in terms of uh, organizations like the Media Lab or like the Artificial Intelligence Lab. This is technology central, folks. And uh, so comparative media studies occupies a really sweet spot in the middle of all of this hum and controversy. Uh, to be able to step back and take a humanistic point of view or a social science point of view or an artistic point of view and say something new about what's going on that's changing all of our lives. Uh, so we value it very much, we value the program, and we really are glad that you were able to come to this conference to meet each other, to share ideas, to help us rejuvenate as well. Um, that's all I want to say. I hope you have a terrific conference, uh, and thank you again for participating. And it's now my uh, pleasure to introduce the uh, uh, my, my colleague and close friend, William Uricchio, who in some sense is a kind of model for the sort of international scholar we all hope to be. He has appointments both at MIT and at, uh, at, at Utrecht uh, in, in, uh, in, 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 my favorite, in my favorite country of the world, Holland. Uh, and uh, his work on, not only on this conference, but uh, in helping to shape the uh, program in Comparative Media Studies has been exemplary and continues. He's now the director of the uh, 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 Comparative Media Studies program uh, and a crucial advisor to the Communications Forum, William Uricchio.
So thanks very much, uh, David, for the kind words, uh, Deborah as well, and um, welcome everyone. Um, when I was hired at MIT back in 99, uh, before I actually start, came here to start teaching, the, first, the very first Media and Transition Conference was held. So it was sort of my debut, the first platform I had to speak here. And um, here we are 12, I think it's 12 years later, our seventh Media and Transition Conference. And in a certain way, conceptually, we've gone back to where we started uh, in terms of the framing of this conference. In the intervening years, we've looked at things like uh, the transition in media as it's affected things like, as, as, as things like globalization have played into it, or the ways in which it's had an impact on our notions of story and storytelling, or the ways in which transitional media have um, affected our notions of memory, our culture of collection. Um, but here we are now back to the beginning, back to our core business, uh, thinking about the process of change, thinking about transition. Um, CMS as a program itself is in a state of transition. Uh, typically, we wouldn't stand up here and talk much about CMS, but it really is at a very interesting moment. And um, some of you might have heard that we closed down, that CMS ended. Not exactly true. The pause button was indeed hit, and we are regrouping. Uh, we've admitted our, uh, we're resuming our graduate program in the fall. We have a terrific bunch, some of whom are in this room. Um, universities, as uh, Pierre Bourdieu reminds us, are sites of cultural reproduction, change in the studies and the objects we study and the paradigms we use and the methodologies we deploy, change comes slowly to universities. Sometimes it comes reluctantly. Um, even in areas as empirically driven as the sciences, as Thomas Kuhn reminds us, are also subject to this. You would think that the, most, the more hard-nosed among us, certainly at an institution like this, would sort of see evidence and change their ideas based upon that evidence. But even there, it comes slowly. But especially in areas like the humanities, uh, where you know, hermeneutics is the order of the day where interpretation, uh, the vagaries of interpretation are really bound in tradition, change sometimes comes more with greater difficulty than in other sections. Um, in this environment, CMS has sometimes had a difficult time. Over the years, we've argued that not only are we not disciplined, we're not a discipline, but we're emphatically undisciplined. We embrace the lack of disciplinarity in our, in our work. It's our strength. I can tell you that it's not the way to win friends and neighbors, our friends in, the, uh, in, a, in a disciplined world. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First is that to be undisciplined is a, lux a luxurious position. And it only works if there are the rich and deep disciplinary traditions at hand to fall back on, to reference oneself to. So it's not as though everyone can just abandon the disciplinary ship and have a free-for-all. We're in the very luxurious position of being able to do that precisely because of the strength of the disciplines that surround us. And secondly, I would argue that particularly at a moment when things are changing and changing rapidly, the notion of standing outside the predictability of disciplines, huh? the trajectories that we can sort of look ahead and see where uh, disciplinary thinking will take us, precisely stepping outside of those traject tra trajectories of the predictable is essential if we're trying to uh, re-articulate, conceptualize, come to terms with something as dramatic as the changes at hand, both in the media world and in the social world around it. It's particularly problematic, this lack of disciplinarity, when bound together with an object of study that still as those of you, most of you in this room know, the object of media is still a kind of 
tainted object. It's an, it's, it's, it still lacks the kind of cultural credibility that, uh, that some of the more traditional cultural artifacts have. And yet, I, you know, paradoxically, it's in some ways more, I won't use the word determining, but more pervasive than ever. It's media is or are, media are the elements that bind us together, the processes that enable our communication, the repositories of our memory, the vehicles for our storytelling. It seems to me that more than ever, at a moment of profound change, what we're seeing with digital emergence of digital culture, the kinds of social networking abilities that are emerging around it, the ways to amass and work with and articulate data in completely different ways, the domain marked by digital humanities, more than ever, it's crucial to really understand these processes. So it's ironic that sometimes media still has this cast of a tainted object, despite the kind of fundamental uh, uh, relationship to the cultures we inhabit. Um, but I'm preaching to the choir. I know that all of you know this from your own experiences, sometimes grudging acceptance within universities and with colleagues, with budgeting regimes at universities. And it's ironic, again, given the huge influx of students. Our students understand this. Our students appreciate the importance of media in their own lives and want to understand it. And I think the discrepancy we see between often marginal departments of media studies at universities and vast influxes of students. I mean, Utrecht is a great example. Uh, I lived through a transition there where we were on the fringes as a new department and yet had something like 30% of all the humanities students in our programs. Uh, that discrepancy speaks to something, and it's a knowledge that we need to uh, acknowledge and respect uh, on the part of our students. Um, you know, obviously, basic cultural literacy today turns on understanding media, on media as a representational process, a communicative uh, uh, order, as an expressive regime. It enables our cultural lives. It enables and facilitates our functions as citizens, our, our actions as citizens. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, with the digital turn, we've seen a really marked acceleration of these dynamics. Uh, so this is obviously where we need to be spending more time looking. Here at MIT, uh, our program has tried to do this by working across media forms. Rather than focusing on any one you know, film or television or radio or whatever, digital, we've really tried to work across media forms, seeking out patterns of recurrence, sharpening distinctions in expressive capacity among uh, different uh, media forms, understanding the interrelationships of signification, production, ownership, uh, shared practices like, such as narrative that move really across these different platforms. Although MIT is very much an institution that's steeped in the new and the kind of the cutting edge of, of, of technological uh, development, and when you walk around, keep an eye out for people like Sir Tim Berners-Lee or Sherry Turkle or Noam Chomsky, they're all wandering around. It's also a place with a very deep media past. This is the place that Technicolor comes from. Tech, the tech in Technicolor comes from MIT's old moniker as tech. Uh, Memex, uh, the Vannevar Bush's uh, vision of what desktop uh, computing would be like. Direct Cinema, Ricky Leacock, who, who died uh, a month or two ago. Uh, direct, this was the cradle of the direct cinema movement in documentary. So there's a deep and rich legacy here. And our program is really straddled to, to encompass that, to work with the old and the new, to learn from history. We try to step back and understanding, understand the dynamics of the new, something that a lot of the papers at this conference are very much part of. Uh, by linking it to the old, by trying to open up and reread a lot of older media practices. Um, history is a wonderful companion for the task of, of rethinking the new, of, of predicting and, and trying to 
capture the logics of where things might be going. And of course, it feeds back into the project of history itself because we're putting new questions, new vantage points uh, to the historical past. Um, we also work quite a bit across cultures, and it's really, as David said, gratifying that so many of you have come from afar to this conference. Um, we look across cultures both as a way to stand outside the taken-for-grantedness of our own culture. Uh, I, I, I travel a lot, and I love it because I see things with fresh eyes. Um, the taken-for-grantedness of everyday life here in a culture that I'm most familiar with is always... Um, roughened and upset when I step outside, and it allows me to see new things. So we do it certainly for that reason, but we also do it to learn from the unexpected deployments of media that emerge in other locations. Um, uh, one of the reasons that we're so gratified to have so many of you here is that it allows, you, it allows us to really drill more deeply in that aspect. The different economic and regulatory and social and cultural regimes um, that every culture has have really, have really led to a world full of experiments, and we would be remiss not to interrogate those other kinds of processes and experimental results. One of our deepest commitments here at CMS is to a research and practice-based pedagogy. All of our students work on research initiatives that are, that are really poised at the bleeding edge of the media scene, whether in games or location-based narratives or civic media, digital humanities, expressive computing. These various projects give our students and our faculty a way to interrogate the explanatory power of the various methodologies and theories that, we're, that we use, um, and at the same time help us to push the research envelope in really unexpected uh, and important directions. These projects have also enabled us to reach out to other departments here at MIT, where we collaborate with groups from literature and anthropology to the media lab to computer science and artificial intelligence. And they've also enabled us to work with partners and communities in places like rural Mexico or Peru, um, with governments and university leaders in places like Singapore, with media industries here in the States, but also in China, Brazil, India, um, this vision of how to approach media studies, of how to conceptualize and lead media change, has served us really well here. Uh, it's the logic behind this recurrent, recurring event, media in transition. And just as in 1999, when the first Media in Transition conference served as the launch pad for the then new CMS program, um, this conference thematically echoes that conference. It's focusing on the, the instability of platforms, the, the project of transition, pure and simple. And it also, you know, marks from a distance of 12 years the relaunch of the CMS program and the return of graduate students in the fall. So I'd like to add to the welcome my colleagues have given to those of you who have uh, come, and especially to the, to the jet lagged. I know that feeling well, so welcome, strength. It's great to see so many old friends uh, here in the, in the crowd. It's one of the great benefits of being able to do this over a decade. Um, Let's see, a couple of points. Uh, it's going to be a long day today, and uh, we'll try to have some calories available later in the day, some high-calorie you know, high snacks to sort of see you through the last stint. Um, many of the papers that will be given here are online, in draft form. The, their authors, all the authors have done that in seeking sort of input so that they can, they can improve their work and uh, get it ready for publication. So your input is certainly uh, welcome. The breaks uh, today are on the short side, 15 minutes, but Saturday they widen out to a half an hour, so there'll be a lot more time to socialize. There'll be reception tomorrow night, which will be a lot of fun. So without further ado, let me uh, get the ball rolling and say welcome and let's get started. Thank you.
Well, people, it's a very good sign that we are that we are uh, actually ahead of schedule. Uh, let me suggest that we actually wait five minutes. Uh, we will start the event here on time at 1.30. You have five minutes to have a drink, go to the bathroom. There are plenty of bathrooms around uh, to chat. We'll, we'll, we'll resume once our speakers have found the table, and we'll begin then. People were about to begin. Can I have your attention? Uh, I'm not going to officially introduce our speakers by reading their biographies. You can find them, uh, abbreviated versions of them, in our conference booklet. Uh, but I have asked each of our panelists in one second ago, so they're improvising, to give a brief account, to give, give a brief introduction to, this, uh, to themselves and to the work they're doing, and then we'll begin our conversation. Let's, we'll, we'll start and work down. Uh, my name is Josh Benton. Is this on? Yes? No? Um, there you go. My name is Josh Benton. I'm uh, director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, just down the street. Um, so we are, we are basically, I describe ourselves usually as 85% newsroom, 15% think tank. And we, our area of interest is the, the future of journalism. So we do lots of work around evolving business models for online journalism, new, uh, new techniques for, for attracting and maintaining audiences, um, you know, the new rounds of startups uh, that are trying to do interesting things and how innovation is happening at traditional news organizations. Uh, my name is Mark Lachese. I spent almost 30 years before coming into academia as a newspaper reporter, newspaper editor, magazine writer. And four years ago, I uh, joined the faculty at Emerson College here in Boston, which is a communication and arts college. Um, and my areas of research online journalism, political blogs, I'm an old political reporter, um, and media in transition. I'm Kathleen Fitzpatrick is, yeah, okay, good. Um, I'm a professor of media studies at Pomona College in Southern California um, and have been working for the last few years on uh, this transition in scholarly publishing itself, um, thinking about the ways that scholarly publishing is being affected by um, shifts to digital publishing. I have, um, oddly enough, a book coming out about that um, in the fall um, called Planned Obsolescence, uh, which I will be happy to tell you much more about if you like. Um, I am, as of July 5th, um, actually taking a new job as Director of Scholarly Communication for the Modern Language Association. Um, anything that I say here on this panel is my own opinion and does not reflect <laughs> the opinions of the MLA. My name is Peter Müller. Um, I work in the English Department of Mainz University. And um, I think one of the uh, reasons why I'm, I have been asked to be here on the panel is that I come from a university that's called Johannes Gutenberg University, <laughs> which is, of course, a key name in this context, although um, 
the Gutenberg um, stocks, I've been told, are falling. Um, but nevertheless, this is where I work, um, and we uh, formed a research group working on the effects of uh, media convergence, a group that consists of people come working in the fields of um, book studies, business, um, sociology, law, um, media studies, um, film studies, cultural studies. Um, so it's um, a group where people from very <coughs> different fields work together uh, and even though uh, interdisciplinarity has been a key term for a long time um, in institutions like these, um, my feeling and my experience is that it has not been um, practiced uh, very efficiently and effectively, uh, which is, although this is of course something that's a key term and a must do, uh, in media studies. So this is where I come from uh, and this is my perspective on uh, media. Um, this combination of um, British studies where I work and um, media convergence with a particular focus um, of the effects of media convergence on narrative. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of uh, preliminary remarks. One is that, uh, as, I, as I hope you people in the audience realize, nearly every person on our plenary conversation panels is drawn from uh, the group of folks who have registered for the conference and are delivering papers there. Uh, that's actually a conscious strategy. It has always been so at the Media and Transition Conferences because the idea is that any, or virtually all of you in the audience could just as easily be here. And because of that, be on the panel. So the, the idea is that we really want to encourage conversation and uh, uh, this, this panel discussion will be, uh, I hope, a kind of model for what will follow. Uh, we will have a conversation uh, amongst ourselves on the panel for the first half of our time here, and then we'll open up to uh, uh, questions and answers, statements from the audience. And it's almost always the case that the interchanges between audience and panelists are the highlight of such events, and I encourage you to crystallize your thoughts and be, re be, be ready to participate with, with, with passion and seriousness. Uh, uh, again, welcome to everyone. The topic of our first panel is really the basic topic of our conference, and I thought it would be a good idea for us to begin by speculating in somewhat broad ways, although each of our speakers having a, uh, a, 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 a specific territory to cover will hopefully concretize the broad questions that we want to confront. Uh, but we sure, the, the, the idea that... Uh, that uh, uh, we are, we are in, if not an unprecedented situation, a very unusual and complicated one is surely the case. Uh, we know that emerging technologies and cultural practices are now challenging inherited conceptions of artworks, of forms of communication, of design objects. We even have begun to realize, as I suggested in the conference welcome text that our notions of a desired end state or a final coherence or completion for texts and forms of discourse 
are in many cases being forced to yield to more open-ended ideas of a text or an object that evolves as users and collaborators shape it in an ongoing process. It seems to me that we're entering a future, perhaps a disorienting one, in which even our centuries-old reliance on textual and visual communication is complicated profoundly by the emergence of social networks, of mobile systems, of, uh, of sensor technologies as well as mobile technologies, an era in which our very understanding of authors, creators, the artifacts they make, is challenged by cyberspace and virtual life. And it's a, it, this is the sort of broad context in which I hope our conversation can proceed. I've, I've often uh, tried to take comfort, and I do take comfort, from historical precedents. And many of the most interesting papers in our, in our session are about earlier moments in cultural history when societies or cultures felt themselves to be under the pressure of profound forms of transformation because of changes in media technology. And I find those uh, uh, um, papers and those, and those perspectives uh, uh, instructive and, and, and comforting, and one of my one of the most instructive of these of these previous uh, uh, moments of transition, of course, is the one uh, that we associate with the birth of film. And I I, uh, I increasingly take comfort from uh, the really quite distinguished scholarship that has historical scholarship that has emerged uh, surrounding early film, because it's a reminder to us of how unsettled and confused the early phases of a uh, of, of a media transfer, of a moment of media transformation can be. Uh, one of my favorite details about that illustrates this kind of instability is the wonderful fact that uh, Thomas Edison himself first envisioned uh, the movies in a way that was radically different from the ways in which the movies developed. He envisioned a system realized more than a century later in the video camera and video-enabled cell phone in which movie technology was what we would today call a consumer item, a new format for family history and individual expression. Uh, I mean, I find that instructive and even in some ways comforting because the turmoil and false starts of earlier eras are helpful reminders that our current experience of media and transition is not unique. And as I say, there's comfort here as well as instruction. But it may be sometimes, I think, a minimal comfort for those of us who are caught in what seems a ceaseless hurricane of technological convergence the rise and dominance and virtual disappearance of products, formats, and delivery systems. And if we think, for example, about what's happening to our idea of what the screen is, uh, uh, how, 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 the screen, how screen size is both miniaturizing and enlarging in ways that profoundly transform the experience of, uh, of, of visual communication, we have just one minor instance of the kind of instability we're contending with. Our stories, our public rituals, and messages are now transmitted to screens as small as those on a cell phone or as large as those in sports arenas or convention centers. And our TV screens can, can uh, shrink to laptop size or enlarge to fill a living room wall. These, I think, are comparatively minor disruptions compared to such major developments as the appearance of entirely new modes of communication or the way interactive and participatory energies have been unleashed by the Internet age. Um, and as I suggested uh, in, in the conference program, the printed book ramified over long centuries, its possibilities explored and refined by successive societies and generations. 
And before the computer, even the new communication forms of the 20th century, radio, film, television, developed over decades in circumstances of relative stability. The half-life of digital formats seems vanishingly small by comparison. And yet, nervous as this might make us, uneasy as this might make us, uh, there is, of course, a profoundly positive side to this perspective as well. Uh, 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 the, the, the emergence of profoundly new ways of communicating and the emergence of, uh, of, of uh, uh, new systems for artistic and... and other forms of imaginative expression is perhaps, uh, if not unprecedented, very remarkable in today's world. So this challenge to the usefulness of historical perspectives and even the intimation that our unsettled transition may be a permanent condition, these are incitements to recognize the exhilarating promise and uniqueness of emerging technologies. So there's a kind of doubleness that I hope will be reflected in our, in our perspectives here that I hope will be reflected in our conversations. The, our plan is to talk about three broad areas, uh, really three, two broad topics and then something even broader. One, the fate of narrative, uh, aspects of narrative. Our second big topic is what we have broadly identified as the public sphere, in which we'll focus in part on journalism and the various ways in which uh, interactive technologies may be affecting, uh, shaping our, our future. And then we'll end with, ask, uh, I'll end by asking our, our panelists to talk about their visions and maybe their nightmares for the future, to speculate a little bit about the worst case scenarios and best case scenarios. So let's begin then by, uh, I'd like to begin by, by, by asking Peter to start, uh, to discuss what we're broadly calling the fate of narrative. What's happening to our culture stories and storytellers? What's been the impact? What's the future import of the proliferation of audiences, creators, ways to communicate on unstable platforms? Peter. Yeah, thank you. Um, Perhaps let me um, begin with an addition to uh, what David has just said. Um, actually, I was surprised not to find any um, comments on the context of the tradition and transition that we are in, um, in the papers or anywhere else connected with the, um, this conference, probably because it's so well-known uh, so forgive me for saying this, um, namely that in my opinion um, the transition that we are in is comparable to the transition from the Middle Ages to the early modern age, uh, from the agricultural world to the industrial world. Uh, and yes, we are in a period of enormous changes. Um, how long this will last, um, nobody knows. Um, people don't even know actually what the period is that we are moving into. That's why many just talk about a, the post-industrial age, which is of course an indication of what we are leaving, but uh, doesn't say anything about where we are going to. And then there are expressions um, like the information society, um, with uh, their creative industries, um, IT, and all the other things. So, yes, we are uh, in a period of enormous change, and we are 
experiencing uh, a very, very important transition with all the uh, insecurities and instabilities that one can expect in such a period. As to the question of narrative, um, well, narration is a mental schema, and uh, therefore it will survive and will survive for a very, very long time. Actually, there is no reason for um, fearing uh, that there will be any significant changes, but it's, of course, of the greatest interest to see uh, what changes actually the new media um, bring uh, to um, narrative. Uh, and this is something that is of the highest importance indeed. Um, connected with um, this question, um, I'd like to pick on to um, what uh, it says um, there on the board, what is happening to our culture stories and storytellers. Um, this is a very intriguing question because um, I think... Um, that the new media um, go beyond uh, national contexts, which is again something that is far from being internationally confirmed. Um, there are even uh, legal restrictions prohibiting that. Uh, when, for instance, you want to take a look at, uh, at what was shown on BBC last night, um, you can't do it, and even we in Germany can't do it, although we live in the same, same European un Union as Britain's. Um, but, I mean, this is something that I find extremely important, um, namely going beyond national contexts. Um, on the one hand, as far as storytelling is concerned, which, of course, gives us all the possibilities that we already have, namely to get to know um, stories and ways of storytelling from other um, countries and our other cultures. And on the other hand, what the new media and the um, instable platforms require is, of course, um, that um, the creators of stories adapt to what these new platforms can do best uh, and what the users of these new platforms expect as far as um, storytelling content and so on is concerned. Um, these are my initial comments um, on this question of storytelling. Kathleen. So when I, I've been thinking some about this question about what is changing in our thinking about narrative and storytellers as um, we move into these increasingly unstable platforms um, that, that we're now surrounded by, there are a couple of things that have been occurring to me, um, one of which has to do, of course, with the dispersal of narrative across multiple platforms, right? That, that stories now move and move very fluidly from different kinds of space um, across different kinds of space 
space onto different kinds of platforms in ways that that in the print era we were never really required to encounter. Um, the the primary reference that I have as I'm, I'm thinking about storytellers here are on the one hand novelists um, who are obviously presenting us with text based linear narratives that that have have dominated Western culture for for several centuries now. On the other hand, I'm also thinking, frankly, about academics and our own narratives, the narratives of our research projects and how they move forward and how we explore those um, in written form. And all of those different forms of, of storytelling, of narrative, are moving across multiple platforms. They're, they're happening in print, but they're also happening in blog spaces. They're happening in EPUB formats on, on tablet readers. Um, they're happening in Twitter. They're happening in, in multiple formats at once as they get distributed and spread around by the folks who are interacting with those those narratives. And this has a couple of, of effects. I mean, on the one hand, storytellers now have a far greater array of tools and channels at their disposal um, in order to get their narrative out to their audiences. Um, and, you know, that's fantastic. It's great that we have so much access at this point um, to to the, the tools of narrative production. But on the other hand, storytellers are increasingly becoming responsible for those tools and channels, for operating them, for distributing their work through them, for ensuring that, that the work gets to the audience that it needs to get to. So on the one hand, um, cutting out the middleman in the distribution of narrative um, gives more more authors, more opportunity to get their texts into circulation. And on the other hand, we do need to think about what we might be losing in that process if we lose the middleman entirely. Um, As every author becomes required either to be or to hire her own editor, for instance, or her own marketing department, um, what, what becomes of the work of the author as author when the author is also self marketer? Um, so on the one hand, there is this utopian ideal that these unstable platforms put forward for the possibilities for the author, um, that, that we can fully move narrative out of the cathedral and into the bazaar, right, to really get it out there in the open. Um, but the result may be that that work in really some unexpected ways has to actually become more attuned to questions of market than it ever has before, even where that market is acknowledged to be a niche market um, in ways that it hasn't before. The other thing that I want to point to just very quickly is that in all of this thinking, I mean, in everything that I have just said, probably everything that I will continue to say over the next three days, um, we're really at a very incunabular moment with these platforms. Um, in, in the era of Gutenberg, it took us 50 years to get the full implementation of the page number Right? And we're still so early in dealing with the ways that texts are moving across what are very, very unstable platforms that all of this is, is really kind of speculation and requires a kind of flexibility that authors have not been, been required to have for the last two centuries. Mark. I don't really think <clears throat> the stories themselves are changing. I don't really think narrative is changing. I think what I know what's changing um, is the platforms, but the platforms, a little bit of disagreement here, I believe the platforms change more slowly. I completely agree with with Peter when he said narrative, narrative is a mental schema. So 
and and with with Kathleen, I should just say I agree with the two of them and be done with it. Um, the dispersal of narrative across multiple platforms. You said fifty years for the page number. We can talk about what is narrative in social media, what is narrative on Twitter, what is narrative um, in, in various new platforms. The persistence of legacy platforms, of traditional platforms, is something I'm afraid we tend to overlook in these in these circumstances in in these in these uh, cases. I don't know how many of these pe people in this room read it, were reading text on a printed page uh, this morning or last night. I would guess probably most, if not all, of you. Yes, Joshua. I've i got a printed page right here. All right then. <laughs> I was reading a Walker Percy novel last night, <laughs> and um, book sales last year. Book sales, books. Not e-books, books, square things, Gutenberg, um, increased by 3.6%. Book sales, not the publication of books. Uh, the newspaper industry is still a $50 billion industry. The stories remain the same. To me, the only distinction is good narrative and less good narrative. Um, and I think as we as we move around in all of the platforms we now have, we and all of the access that that you know, um, I, I, uh, in 1984 I was working at a uh, a newspaper newspaper group here uh, in Boston outside of Boston, and our first Macintosh was delivered, and our IT guy I was fascinated by. It. And our IT guy patted it on the head, this Macintosh. And he said to me, you see this, Mark? With this, Mark, any idiot can be a publisher. <laughs> um, and some of the results of it have been not good narrative, but some of the results of it have been um, an almost constant stream of narrative and from which we find, in surprising places sometimes, moving important, um, excellent narrative. Um, I, I think that it is, um, well, I'll disagree. I'll, I'll add, add the, the element of disagreement here. Um, and that I think that the stories are really changing and the, the kinds of narratives that are being produced are significantly influenced by the formats in which those, those stories are told. Um, newspaper stories look like newspaper stories for reasons that are historical, that are economic, that are based around that format, just as encyclopedia entries look different, and a minute 30 t TV piece on, on the local Fox News looks very different. Um, and I think that these, these formats really do have a significant influence on how narratives get told and shared. And I think one of the, the, the most significant changes that um, we're seeing in, in narrative is that there, the, the stories that we tell are becoming less contained. They're becoming less completed. Um, you know, when, when a newspaper story um, was written on, you know, 20 years ago, there was a cycle of reporting and writing, and then there was a finished document, and that document was delivered to people's homes. 
not only do we have now the capacity to update stories and the ability for stories to change over time and to morph over time, you also find that stories are often delivered with, in a universe of new ancillary objects that sort of surround the story. The, the story that someone reads uh, uh, on, the New York, on the New York Times website is going to be different if it is linked to uh, by someone on Twitter who adds a comment to that story that provides an initial filter. That means that even though the end document is unchanged, the experience by, for the reader or the consumer of the narrative is going to be different. And this new universe of ancillary objects uh, in social media and in other realms, I think, is having a significant impact in pushing storytelling, uh, you know, words and text more in an oral and a, a broadcast sort of direction. I think another element that's really changing is that narratives are happening in, in real time in a way that was not necessarily tied to um, you know, prose, uh, prose words before. Um, that was, again, a little bit more of a broadcast narrative. I mean, just think back to uh, you know, not that long ago, a couple weeks ago, when uh, Osama bin Laden was shot. Um, in the days following, um, many news outlets and, and other folks were very interested in trying to reconstruct uh, to the, the, the narrative that led up to President Obama making his speech uh, from the White House in, in, a way, in a manner that was trying to get at a very classic journalistic question, who deserves credit here? Yes. Whose scoop was this? And, and you saw these, these independent ancillary objects of tweets by gentlemen like uh, Keith Urban, the, the aide to, to Donald Rumsfeld, who, who allegedly was the first person to say, I think it's Osama bin Laden. Um, you saw this, this reconstruction of this narrative that was happening in real time. Um, I, to use another example, um, just about 24 hours ago, uh, Bill Keller, the, the executive editor of the New York Times, decided to uh, tweet for the first time in, in some time using his uh, Twitter account, NYT Keller, and he tweeted, um, hashtag Twitter makes you stupid, discuss. <laughs> Not necessarily the most media savvy thing to do for an editor of the New York Times. And I can say, and I can say this for some of my colleagues who, are, who share my office who are in, in, in the audience, um, immediately we thought oh, this, was, this became an, an, a narrative that was, that was unraveling itself just before our eyes to see the kind of conversations and the story that was resulting from this one event and all these other events that gathered around it. Um, and I think one thing that we are really changing a lot of the, the tools that we have to, to find these narratives. Because they're happening a lot, in a lot of cases in real time, we need to work on, on creating better tools for capturing those narratives and, and preserving them in amber so that they can be uh, recorded and, and consumed later. Um, and a lot of the forms that we've created for storytelling are really about the capturing you know, what was initially you know, many centuries ago an, an oral tradition. Um, there are also going to be multiple points of entry on any given narrative. You know, and people are going to enter stories and leave stories at different points. Um, you also have, uh, through the existence of online archives, and uh, which are often more more readily available and often uh, you know go back farther than, than would have been the case for for the, a pre-internet era, the ability to see characters develop over time. You know, follow someone on Twitter for for a couple of years, and you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot about that person. That person uh, is going to have a similar sort of character development to uh, what lots of storytelling formats have have tried to achieve. I remember reading a, a document filmmaker once talking about how he felt that Twitter uh, accomplished a lot of what he tried to do as a documentary filmmaker, which was to identify the small, precise moments that in some would get, create a, a, a good picture of, of an individual or a story. And it also means that um, 
you know, you have the ability to use, have formats like what John Stewart does when he notices that someone has said something that contradicted something they said only six months ago. Um, that's, that's not something that technology prevented before, and the CBS Evening News could have done that, and I'm sure did do some version of that. But the ease at which that archive is available, you know, and is text searchable, allows for a certain kind of format to, to evolve. The last thing I'll say uh, is that uh, I do completely agree that you know we are seeing an imposition of market forces into into the storytelling space in, in a really uh, interesting and provocative way. On one hand, the cost of publishing has reduced to to next to nothing, and as a result, you're seeing an, an, an enormous sea of new content that would not have found any sort of commercial outlet before. Whether that's the fan fiction universe, or whether that's people you know having political blogs or, or what have you, but you're also able to see what the market wants in a way that the layers of newspaper hierarchy, book publishing hierarchy, every other sort of hierarchy between the creator and the audience, you get to see what happens when all those are stripped away. I'm, I'm always interested to look at the, the e-book e uh, sales numbers. And see, on one hand, lots of news organizations look towards e-books and Kindle singles and things of that sort as a great opportunity to get long-form journalism out there. And that's, that's probably true. But when you look at what people are actually consuming in e-books, it's zombies, it's vampires, it's, it's, you know, it's, y, it's, it's YA, it's, it's romance, it's it's a lot of the things that uh, lots of folks in the book publishing industry have always sort of acknowledged were the things that a lot of people wanted and were willing to pay 99 cents for. But now you really do have a much, a much more direct view into what the market is seeking and, and pursuing. And I think that's going to inform a lot of our, the, our choices going forward and the, the ways in which storytelling continues to evolve. Uh, one, uh, I want to, to encourage the speakers to realize they don't always have to speak in this order. You can, <laughs> I, I want you to break right. in or make some suggestions. But on the basis of the discourse that we've just heard, uh, there were a couple of strains I was hoping we might develop a little bit further. And I'm, I'm especially interested, Kathleen, in your uh, uh, sense, which I share very strongly, that we really are in, in a deeply embryonic moment, in, a, in, a, mm -hmm. in an early dawn, a very early dawn. And I wonder if you developed some of the implications of that and maybe some of the other panelists can chip in as well. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, the most, I think, important implications of that as far as I'm concerned, and this connects to something that Joshua was just saying, is that um, as we're developing and at an, an increasingly rapid pace these new forms like Twitter, as we're increasing the amount of narrative, the amount of discourse that's circulating, we're, we don't have a handle on what to do with all of that information, how to hang on to it, um, where to put it, what we can use it for, what we can't use it for. So, of course, famously, the Library of Congress is getting the Twitter stream, right? So all of, all of Twitter except that which is purposefully blocked from the LOC archive is going to be preserved. But how? Um, how it will be accessed, we don't know. Who will have access to it, we're not sure. Um, up until fairly recently, it was relatively easy for anyone, any scholar, any reporter, anyone interested to maintain an archive of a particular moment on Twitter, of an issue as it circulated, using a, a, a service like TwabberKeeper, for instance, um, with a conference like this, using the MIT7 hashtag, you could set up an archive, and everything that happened in this conference would then be preserved in one space that people could do interesting things with, could do text mining, could figure out where we the done threads that. of... Well, <laughs> except that TwabberKeeper has effectively been shut down by Twitter. Twitter has changed its 
its authentication um, API and it has changed its terms of service such that archiving any stream other than your own is no longer permissible. Um, and because of this, you know, the, there's some fascinating conversations and really important moments that are very likely going to be lost, um, and lost to researchers, lost to journalists, lost to, to historical sensibility um, very, very fast. That is, we're moving into more and more fast-paced platforms before we have a sense of how to archive and preserve them. Um, we're likely to, to lose a lot more material very quickly. This is certainly a topic to which we will return because we have an entire uh, panel discussion on archives and cultural memory. Any? Well, I think this is also where we move from um, where we run into the limitations of the interesting things we can do with this new platform, limitations that are put up uh, by corporations, um, by by media as corporate entity. Um, uh, probably a lot of people here are involved some way or connected somehow to an academic institution and frequently use LexisNexis. Um, and you know what a, what a fantastic research tool that was and you know that 15 years ago <clears throat> you would be in dusty basements looking through old magazines uh, and crumbling newspapers. I don't know how many people here have been, had the experience I had uh, of working in a magazine and trying to buy LexisNexis for the staff. It's incredibly expensive. Um, and I know that even um, newspapers have, uh, I'll take a newspaper example, the Boston Globe. The Boston Globe is not on LexisNexis. That was, it's on EBSCO. That was a business decision. And uh, the, that's a perfect illustration. Mm -hmm. Um, we tend to think that what comes through Twitter, what comes through Facebook, uh, belongs to no one, is everyone's property. Um, we find that it isn't. Right. It, it, uh, again, it's, it, it's where open platforms become more constrained uh, by, corp by corporations, corporate media corporations. Well, one, one obvious implication of what's been saying, of what we've just been saying, uh, triggered by, what, by Kathleen's uh, last comment, is, is that uh, uh, one danger that we really uh, need to figure out ways of controlling or, or confronting uh, has to do with the way in which uh, uh, technological change is so profoundly driven by the profit motive and mm. how, how, how potentially... Uh, uh, unhelpful that can be for larger civic values or or aesthetic values. Uh, uh, I, I'm not. I, I have no solutions to this, but it seems to me one of the really great questions, and and especially an issue, especially an issue in the American environment where there's where there's all this constant drumbeat about deregulation, about and hostility to forms of control or forms of shaping, forms of regulation that might come out of what we might think of as a civic impulse rather than a profit-making impulse. And I, I strongly feel that this is, I'm, I'm sure this is one of the really, really gravest ongoing dangers that this digital transformation uh, uh, confronts us with. 
I think that is a that is a good point. I would I would say though that it's it's not as if this is the first time that the profit motive has injected its head into into communications. I mean, right. newspaper owners, uh, while they had a, a wonderful cloak of civic mindedness in many cases, uh, that cloak would only work if they were still making money every every year. And they, because of the monopolies that many of them had in in this country in particular, um, they were able to make an awful lot of it. Um, I do think though that what is what is at least potentially different this time is the ways in which. Um, to the extent that things exist online and on the common platform of the internet, unstable though that platform may be, to reference the title of this panel, um, you know there there is that you know there is the sense that a lot of things are in Google, a lot of things are are, are accessible in a way that you know it's it's still a, a, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more accessible than it, it might have been in the past, where you know it's very easy when you're at an institution that has a wonderful research library uh, to to realize that you know for most of the world that that access never existed. Right. Right. Uh, um, it, it seems to me that that uh, uh, one element, at least one uh, preoccupation of mine that uh, I, I, I mentioned a moment ago that I'd like to see if I, I, I can get some response from the panelists about, has to do with another kind of uh, disturbing uh, uh, possibility that's been implicit in what we've been saying and that I mentioned explicitly in the beginning in my introduction, which is that uh, it's, it's obvious that there are so many promising and exhilarating possibilities in terms of information retrieval information, uh, access to information, collaborative forms of, of information gathering and, and presentation. But uh, uh, the, uh, all of that seems you know, immensely exciting, and it seems to me to uh, have, but it seems to me to have much more to do with, what could I call it, with, it seems to me to have much more to do with, broadly, with journalism than it does with literature than it does with art. In other words, and, and you know, I, I remember uh, even in a, in, 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 a, uh, in a different era, in a, in, you know, at a, at, a, at a time when uh, many of you in the audience were not even yet alive, I remember, I remember studying in graduate school what we thought of as the development or the evolution of the Elizabethan theater. In other words, the idea was, how did Shakespeare arrive? What explains Shakespeare? What, what were the prior conditions? And the argument essentially came down to something which has you know, animated my own scholarship for, for most of my career. The idea was that uh, there was a kind of recognition that, that uh, it took a kind of 30-year period. The invention of a new technology, which was the stable theater, Right, they had disappeared after the classical age, and one of the first great theaters in the in the in in the in in the Western world was the first great stable uh, uh, theaters that were no longer mobile, that didn't sort of travel from town to town, were established in London. And in fact, there were foreign travelers who would come and write uh, amazed uh, write amazed uh, uh, responses to this to this new uh, uh, form of entertainment. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, what 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 was produced on those Stages was relatively was relatively primitive, and there's actually a, a an elaborate scholarship. It, it parallels the scholarship about the birth of the movies in some ways, uh, uh, talking about how complicated that time was, and how, how how over time, because the theaters became stable, because audiences continued to make them profitable, uh, what 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 developed was a, a, a circumstance, a condition under which uh, more more and more complex forms of drama could be could be conceived and imagined. Imagined, 
right? And, and the idea is it's, it's a sort of triumphalist narrative in which the end point is Shakespeare. Now, that, there's obviously a kind of simplification there because theater continues after Shakespeare. And in fact, the stability in England disappeared. The stability stopped. They, they canceled the theaters at a certain point. The, the moment of, of, of exhilaration and, and, and uh, achievement that's represented by the moment of Shakespeare and Marlowe uh, 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 is, is, uh, was, was very short-lived. Uh, uh, nonetheless, an astonishing body of drama was created in that period, and especially in the last uh, uh, ten years or so of this essentially thirty-year period, when, uh, which culminates in, in in Shakespeare's work. The question, and one could make a similar argument, as I've suggested, about other narrative forms, about the novel, for example, which took so many really centuries to to, to evolve. The, the, what I'm nervous about, what I'm questioning, is. Are we going to have to wait 30 years before there are any stable digital platforms in which the, 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 the digital novelists and, and, and dramatists of the future will actually be able to figure out what is unique and special about their medium before it disappears or transforms under their eyes? My, my impulse is to say no, and then immediately behind it, maybe. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, okay, so I have, I have two conflicting answers in my head, one of which is that there's been a lot of experimentation for the last 30 years in digital forms of narrative, um, as uh, beginning you know, with hypertext and moving forward through newer forms of electronic literature that are taking on um, both textual and, and non-textual forms, and really it's sort of experimenting with what the medium can do. Now, the medium is, of course, changing out from under those, those texts. If you attempt to go back and read many of those very early hypertexts, you can't get to them now unless you happen to have a very old computer lying around that you can uh, still run them on. So the, the forms are evolving. Um, and also as, becoming extinct. And becoming extinct as the platforms are themselves evolving. That having been said, there are organizations that are working very directly and explicitly on attempting to create models for archiving, preserving, and and um, porting forward as technology changes those texts that are being created today. So the Electronic Literature Organization, for instance, is, is really thinking about this question of preservation and of, of finding ways to keep the, the narrative experiments that are being conducted um, in electronic literature active and alive um, as computer systems change and as the web itself evolves into something completely unexpected at this point. So, I mean, on the one hand, I want to say, you know, th this is happening, this is being done, it's, you know, it's all good. Um, on the other hand, it is something that we do need to sort of continue to think about and think about I mean, w what the status of fiction is in the contemporary universe. I mean, this is part of the, the David Shields reality hunger argument, right? That, in fact, on some level, we, we need culturally everything to be real right now. Um, our, our reality can be fake, that's perfectly fine, but it still needs to have some sort of label of realness around it for us to be able to engage with it um, on some level. And so what that means for the things that we have thought of as fiction, I'm not sure. I mean, the novel is a relatively recent form, all things considered. It's, it's had an excellent run. It's not dead or dying by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but on the other hand, there are a whole lot of other forms that are growing up alongside it that, in fact, might be taking us back 
to the novel's origins, to those early moments at which the novel had to pass itself off as being found in the attic or as being the product of some really existing human being in order to be accepted as a text that could be read. We may be back in that position in which fiction is, is somewhat less lessened um, in our cultural universe and that, that the work that's being done to tell us about ourselves you know, for better or for worse, um, in some literal sense, is what we need more of. Okay. Um, why don't we? Why don't we make our, a, a transition our, of our own now to a, to a, a more explicit con- consideration of the technologies that are transforming what I think of it, what I'm, call, what I'm calling public discourse, uh, and focus more fully on newspapers and on, on uh, what is happening in the world of journalism, what skills will be needed for journalists in the future, who will be those journalists, what hybrid forms are emerging, and so forth. Let's start with Josh this time. Well, I mean, I think um, we actually, if, if any of you read, our, read my site, NeimanLab.org, we just had a, an interesting post that went up an hour ago about the, the, the definitional question of who is a journalist. And in general, I feel that, that um, the definition, the, the idea of defining who a journalist is is, a little bit, is less interesting to me than defining what journalism is and what the act is. Because I think that, um, you know, in, in the same way that um, you, can, you, can, you may not be a singer, but that doesn't mean that when your daughter turns three, you can't sing Happy Birthday. I think that there are lots of uh, instances of people who will not have the professional tag, it won't say on their business card, journalist or staff writer or reporter, but who will commit acts of journalism and who will do things that, uh, that are recognizably based around uh, uh, finding out information, uh, con- preparing it in some format, and then sharing it with a broader audience. Um, in some sort of civically minded way, um, you know, the we, we want to talk about unstable platforms. The journalism business is full of them right now, um, and but as as was said earlier, the they're not always as unstable as as lots of fear mongers would like you to believe. Newspapers aren't a fifty billion dollar business anymore; they're about a thirty billion dollar business. And it, at the, this point, having lost an awful lot of money the last few years, but they still generate a huge amount of money. And print businesses are still still generate you know those those Macy's ads still cost a lot of money. They still generate a lot of revenue, and you know. The, the core of our journalistic resources still lie in the, the large newsrooms of newspapers around the country. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, is that a lot of, that, that we're starting to see the elements of that distribution of journalistic uh, uh, talent and journalistic capacity, we're starting to see those limits really exposed. We're starting to see that newspapers were really only interested in certain kinds of stories and had beat structures that were based around those stories. And they had systems of deciding that, you know, roughly one-fifth of the stuff that happens in a 24-hour period that's important happens to be sports. And, you know, the, the, the business and historical and marketing elements that contribute to that, that, uh, that end point and the fact that Wednesday just happens to be a really good day to learn about recipes and that Sunday is a really good day to have long editorials. Um, those sorts of patterns um, are, are, are being exposed as, as you know, uh, often very intelligent uh, distillations of, of, of a variety of background facts, but not necessarily the only answer. Um, so I think that, you know, from a, from a business point of view, um, it's interesting to look at, how, at the decline of geography as, as the defining factor for journalism online. Um, if you look at, you know, there have been many, many hundreds and thousands of, of journalism or journalistically related startups in, in the last five years. Um, they are v- much more disproportionately based around topics, 
themes, uh, a, a, psycho, a, a psychographic profile as opposed to a geographic profile. When you look at, the, at startups that are based around covering Boston or covering Providence or covering Worcester, those uh, disproportionately tend to be, fall into three categories. The first is nonprofits, people who think that uh, this journalism is important and even if the, the marketplace will not support it, we're going to try and figure out a way to do it otherwise. Or they are really large corporate entities that are trying to do uh, an enormous sweep of local, the way that AOL is doing with Patch and, and a variety of other places they're doing. Or they're really small scale. They're one hyper-local blogger who's really trying to cover a neighborhood really well. Um, when you look at people who are starting journalism outlets uh, online as, and aiming towards making money, they're very rarely based around you know, the distance that the truck can drive in the morning to deliver papers, you know, the, the, the ways in which the distribution methods of traditional journalism, or as far as your broadcast signal could reach, that those, those methods really created a geographic basis for reporting. Uh, and, you know, one of, the, one of the concerns, we're not at the visions and nightmares period yet, but the, uh, one of the things, that, um, nightmares may be a bit strong, I don't actually, you know, wake up in terror every night at this point, but... Um, you know, while, while journalism is becoming less geographically oriented, you know, our political structure is still geographically oriented. You know, the city, city councils and school boards and all the other things that journalists have traditionally uh, played a significant role in, in, in watchdogging, um, those are all still based uh, on an older model. Um, so that's the one place where, you know, I, I don't worry about most of the information needs of society. I think that, you know, people who think that there's going to be no more journalism anymore just don't really understand what's, what's happening out there. But I do think that is one area of, of concern and making sure that, you know, there's somebody at the city council meeting. Uh, my argument <clears throat> about the end, of, uh, the end of journalism and the end of newspapers uh, has always been it's not really a journalism. What's happened to newspapers is not really a journalism problem. It's a business model problem. Mm. Um, also, one of the most important questions in life about any uh, piece of information is, compared to what? And Joshua and I both love newspaper reporters. We probably lived through the golden age, which probably came in the mid-1980s. Um, compared to what? In the 1950s, 1960s, um, the afternoon newspaper died. When I was a boy, you could buy afternoon newspapers, uh, read on the subway home. Traffic and the TV news killed it. From the late 70s through the early 90s, one of the, one of the big cost centers of any newspaper was production. Um, from linotype to cold type to Quark 1.0, um, and newspapers reduced their operating costs substantially without raising reporters' salaries. Um, it was not unusual then for newspapers to have run 30 40% profit margins annually. Um, that, in fact, was standard and expected by investors. So we did see a golden age, and that, that was the question. Are newspapers dying, or are they reinventing themselves digitally? I don't think they're dying. Um, they're shrinking, no question about it. AM radio, uh, uh, television didn't kill radio. And FM radio didn't kill AM radio, but it changed it significantly. And I think that's what's happening with newspapers. Um, the first newspaper online presence uh, was what we used to call shovelware, where you took all the copy in the newspaper and just shoveled it onto the website. Anybody who reads 
even a, a, a small or mid-sized newspaper website now knows there's a lot of original content. Um, but they're beginning to, uh, newspapers are beginning to understand they need to change their business model. Um, in just five years, uh, the New York Times went, for uh, New York Times Media Group, which is the Times, the Globe, uh, the Worcester Telegram, and uh, 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 about 14 small papers, went from 67% of its revenue in advertising and 33% circulation to 53% in advertising, but 47% in circulation because they're increasing their print costs. Um, Joshua raised the question that a few years back everyone was debating, which is who is a journalist? And I agree with Joshua that that question is no longer particularly interesting. Uh, there's a book, I can't remember the author, called We Are All Journalists Now. Um, more to the point is what is journalism and what what distinguishes prof uh, what we consider journalism from any other kind of factual communication? I had to wrestle with this in an academic paper I wrote about political bloggers. And after reading a bunch of theory and applying it to my own life, what I finally came up with was this. And you can argue with this definition. Journalism is gathering information primarily from primary sources rather than secondary or tertiary sources. Um, if, if someone in a sociology class or at my school assigned their students to write a paper on the debate over whether Massachusetts should have casino gambling, they would get a paper... Um, in which the sources and citations were articles in the Boston Globe uh, and websites, secondary sources. Um, a journalist would, uh, you would be doing journalism by going and talking to the people who sponsored the bill, reading the bill. Um, so who, part of, David, the end part of your question is who will be the journalists of the digital age? Well, we all disseminate news. We always have. Um, but I do think that the skills of gathering, organizing, and communicating factual information will primarily distinguish professional journalists. There are fewer newspaper jobs, we all know this, but that doesn't mean there can be fewer professional journalists. Um, I think journalists, for the most part, will remain people who get paid to gather, organize, and communicate uh, information. The same skill set that journalists, the basic skill set that journalists had uh, 50 uh, years ago and 25 years ago, the, the big change is what needs to be added to that skill set is the need to adapt to platforms, unstable platforms, speed. Okay. Uh, uh, we're going to make a, uh, I'm, I, in about uh, hopefully five to ten minutes, we're going to turn to the audience, so start getting your own comments and questions and arguments ready. Uh, 
Um, comments on this topic, or can we can we trans- make a transit? Uh, Kathleen, I you just have, have to one add? very sure. quick topic, which is is just to say that that definition that you guys have both in different ways articulated of journalism is finding out information, organizing it, and sharing it with a broader audience in a civically minded way. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about that in relationship to uh, the scholarly project of finding out a certain kind of information, um, organizing it. Certainly, and sharing it with a, a, a semi-broader audience in a way that might, at least at certain moments, bear something in common with civic-mindedness. Um, and it's something that I've been thinking about that's in this book that I mentioned that's coming out in the fall, is thinking about ways that these platforms, unstable though they may be, enable scholars who want to reach a broader audience, find ways to communicate with a public sphere that they haven't really had access to before now. Um, it does raise a certain question, I mean, as you said, that it may be jur- not that journalism is in trouble, but a problem of business model. Um, if there were ever a problem of business model, it's in scholarly publishing. Um, and these these new models provide us a certain way around that problem. Um, but again, there are certain costs that we need to acknowledge as we move into that. So. Peter, you have a comment? I'd like to make um, comments on two things, Uh, namely your your earlier question whether we'll have to wait 30 years for any more or less stable platforms. Um, I wouldn't want to set a time limit, but I mean I would um, raise the question though, would we be be happy with any um, final uh, platforms? And I would suppose not really. On the other hand, what we have um, precisely in journalism um, is something that reveals the old-fashioned mindedness of the um, people that own newspapers. I've got nine newspapers on my smartphone simply because I'm interested in that and it's of course good to be in Germany and then read um, the um, New York Times or the British Guardian or the Independent. Uh, But, I mean, they are really very, very similar to each other in the ways in which they tell their stories. Um, I find The Guardian most advanced, at least trying to use um, elements of the new medium, trying, I mean, um, but I mean, the main concern of all of them, uh, not really all of them, but I mean, very strongly, even The Guardian um, and the Frankfurter Allgemeine, and of course, evidently, also the New York Times, which actually is a really good newspaper, even in the... um, snippets on the, on the uh, mobile phone. I mean, their main concern is, of course, um, profit, money. And you mentioned it. I mean, and this is the key thing, which is nice, but, I mean, it dominates um, everything uh, and actually seems to make it impossible for people working in newspapers to really think about what one could do with these new platforms. I guess, I mean, they will have to do it in their uh, leisure time rather than during their uh, work hours. 
And this is, of course, something that is um, really regrettable and needs to be overcome. Um, I mean, and I'm looking forward to that, and I hope I won't have to wait 30 years for it. Well, I guess I could – let me start there. I mean, I, I've asked people to I, – I also will ask the audience to do – don't hesitate to give us your – uh, most optimistic vision or your worst nightmare vision of what, what is happening as part of our subsequent discussion. Uh, I suppose one nightmare that you, uh, that the panel has encouraged me to suddenly, to suddenly fear, uh, is a, is a condition of sort of, uh, uh, endless transformation in which after this 30 year period, what's going to happen is that everyone will be so used to the, to unstable platforms that they won't want stability, that they'll simply want things to change and, uh, uh, in a kind of, in a kind of endless cycle, that they'll never, that they'll never, that they'll never be a, a state. And I, that seems to me n not necessarily only a nightmare because there are obvious, uh, 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 incitements to creativity in a situation in which the, uh, field remains so fluid. But let's begin then by, uh, by and Peter, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, especially given your interest in, in uh, the, the narrative, uh, the migration of narrative across different platforms and uh, uh, different media, uh, what emerging practices or developments inspire your optimism and excitement, and what tendencies most trouble you? I'd... Uh like to begin um, or pick up um, the element of change, which is, of course, basically a very good thing. I mean, aren't we all happy that things can change? The question in this context here, too, is uh, who's in control of this change? And, I mean, I'm not the only one who says, I mean, what do we have on the internet? We've got one um, social platform, Facebook. We've got one bookseller, Amazon, and so on. And, I mean, even though you can name other pl uh, social platforms and booksellers, um, there has been such a, a dominance, dominance of um, individual single uh, institutions connected with the dominance of the um, commercial aspect, um, which in the 1990s uh, was far from being what it is today, that I see in this respect actually um, one of the greatest dangers, um, especially in the context um, that on the, on the other hand, I would like, I think there is a great potential for an increase in democracy, having people participate in what happens precisely in their local communities, uh, which is also where I would want to see much more journalism in local communities. And it's not given to the local communities to the extent that I'd like uh, to have it. So there is this potential um, for involving people, which is also only just beginning. Um, and it's far from being developed. I mean, the European Union um, has worked on this aspect of using the internet um, to publish their papers on all sorts of um, political questions. Um, the degree of involvement of the public, um, I'm not sure about, but I um, wonder whether it's um, very big. 
but nevertheless, there and especially uh, in local communities, I see um, a, a very good potential, a very high potential um, of um, the new platforms. And my worries concern the dominance um, that I've just referred to um, with regard to those monopolists, um, a dominance that one um, also finds, of course, um, in, in Apple, I don't know how many of you, I mean, I remember colleagues who um, 10 years ago looked upon Apple as uh, the Robin Hood of um, the new media. I mean, uh, and now they do what every monopolist also wants to do. And this is, I mean, a development which is not good at all, uh, especially also because very often the public is not quite aware of that. So I would just, I have a few sort of paired senses um, of, of optimism and deep, deep ingrained pessimism about these transformations that we're looking at right now. On the one hand, I mean, we're seeing this proliferation of, of really engaging platforms and tools and access to those platforms and tools for telling new kinds of stories, for getting more texts out and so forth. Um, and that's really fantastic. On the other hand, um, the ugly fact remains that we may at some point be forced to recognize that there might not be a viable business model for digital publishing. It just might not exist. And if that's so, what then? Right? We, we are not a culture that's really equipped to think about how to do something without a business plan. Mm. Um, and that's an issue. Um, on the one hand, there's you know the incredible promise of access um, that that more people have more access to more texts than they've ever had before. Um, but on the other hand, there's the problem of persistence um, that those texts have become increasingly evanescent, and we haven't figured out ways. First of all, to figure out how to pre preserve the texts that we're producing, but secondly, how to figure out what to preserve, how to set those priorities, and ensure that those doing the preservation keep them accessible once they've been preserved, but they don't end up in walled gardens where no one can get to them. Um, in the scholarly publishing arena, um, I'm, I continue to be really inspired by the idea that this growing scholarly use of informal communication technologies like blogs and Twitter and so forth um, can really help scholars create networks of colleagues with whom they're in an ongoing form of conversation and collaboration, right? I mean, the argument being that scholarship was always about conversation with one's peers. It just takes place at this really, really glacial pace, and that if it becomes becomes more conversational, we can actually kind of produce more engaged and engaging work. What I worry about, though, of course, is how to get that work taken seriously that's done in these new formats. Um, and this work is, is, of course, real work, and it needs to be taken seriously, both as a form of scholarly production that's worth accrediting, but also as one that's worth preserving. And how to change an academy that doesn't like to change, um, to recognize the ways that this work on new unstable platforms is is worth its while um, is something that I'm continuing to work on. Mark. I look threes. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's not everything I think that's most promising. It's not everything I think that's most disturbing. Three things that I think are most promising. The demonstration 
of the continued high demand for and interest in journalism, information. Um, one of the things that new platforms seem to have done is create more interest in information, whether that's journalism, opinion, um, across multiple platforms. Um, two, the lowering of barriers to entry, I think, is enormously promising. Um, Peter mentioned it. Um, Joshua mentioned it. It's something I, I would love to talk about more, um, which is localization of localization of information and news. Um, Twenty years ago, if the dominant media did not cover something you were interested in, you might start an alternative newspaper, and for that you would need to pay for typesetting and printing and distribution. Those barriers to entry uh, are, are been blown away. Um, and with that, number three is the growth of highly targeted news being produced outside legacy media, being produced outside media corporations. Well, the things that I find disturbing are the, uh, is sometimes the, a race to abandon existing platforms that are still useful. Um, the second thing, and I think we, we could all talk about this, the erosion of acceptance of established fact. Um, the flip side of the high demand for and interest in information on multiple platforms is that if you are interested in and want to believe information that is not factual, there are plenty of places you can go to be reinforced. And the third one that worries me and that disturbs me, but I'm not sure how much I should be disturbed because there's still disagreement um, among scholars, is the fragmentation of the audience um, and the effects that has, that has on the public sphere. Um, the, probably one of the most uh, well-known is, is uh, Cass Sunstein, the uh, former Harvard Law professor in the Obama administration, and his book, Republic 2.0, where he makes the argument that a heterogeneous society benefits from shared experience, many of them provided by the media. Um, on the other hand, there is scholarship that says that ideological segregation on the Internet is lower than ideological separation in offline media and significantly lower than face-to-face -face interactions. I mean, we've all heard this argument, right? That, that we're being, we're being um, the echo chamber effect. Uh, there is some scholarship that refutes it. So I don't know what to think about that <laughs> yet. Um, so we can get to questions. I'll just have, have two points. Um, the first one is, is sort of related to what, the, what we were discussing earlier about public spheres. Um, I think, I don't know if this is really technically a vision or a nightmare, but I, I think that journalists and, and the journalism universe needs to, to complicate their ideas of what, uh, of what getting, being critical to democracy is all about. I think journalists have a set of things that they tell themselves about how necessarily um, 
there needs to be a source of information that will inform the voters and therefore the voters will make uh, better decisions and there's a very straight arrow connection between between those phenomenon and I think you know the political science literature shows that it's actually a lot more complicated than that and that uh, high information voters who are really high level consumers of political information journalistic and otherwise often don't act the way that you might expect them to be uh, to, to act um, you know there was a study that I was just reading about earlier this week in Tanzania that that uh, actually interestingly separated out a group of people who were given uh, a gift card for 75 hours of internet access at an internet cafe versus a, a control group that did not have that access. And they were charged with learning what they could about the, uh, the then current Tanzanian political campaign. And they found that at the end of the, the, the experiment that the folks who were given the internet access were significantly better informed about the issues, were much more uh, justifiably cynical about the state moderated and state controlled uh, press and, and, and their, what they were reporting, but they were also significantly less likely to vote. Um, I think that there are the relationship between political information and the actions that we consider to be in the democratic sphere and the public sphere, it's a lot more complicated than we might think, and I think we need to sort of learn more about that. The, the, the one other point that I wanted to raise, uh, you know, my, my, my vision, the, I think it's wonderful, and I don't think we've, we've hit at it much in, in our panel discussion so far, about the, the new efficiency between connecting uh, people who create journalism or, you know, creative work and an audience for it. Um, you know, tools, you know, we've, we've talked about Twitter a lot to, uh, today, but, you know, Twitter is a tremendous tool at connecting people who produce certain kinds of information and the kinds of people who are interested in those kinds of information. Um, and this, this for, for journalism, this is huge, but it's, it's huge for other kinds of creative endeavors as well. Um, I do worry, though, that we don't really have a good idea how far that efficiency is going to spread and how popular those kinds of, uh, you know, curating your Twitter lists, uh, uh, how popular that behavior is going to be among the kind of people who aren't in this room. Uh, Pew came out this week with a study that showed that uh, for all of the talk around Twitter and, and it as a distribution platform for news, for most major news sites, it's still less than 1% of the traffic that they get is coming from Twitter. Um, we have this, we've, one of the benefits of, of a traditional model where, say, there's one large metro newspaper in your community is that there's a, a set in and, and forget it kind of mode. You subscribe to the newspaper and it's just going to keep coming to you. Um, it's, if that is the social default in your community, you don't have to have the responsibility to go out and seek out news and to seek out uh, information uh, in the same way that you really do in, in a social media powered uh, world. So I think that, that my, my worry is that we don't quite know enough about how much people are going to be interested in cre investing the effort in, in navigating these, these new platforms. And also, we don't know enough about how sophisticated the tools are going to get to, uh, to make that, that work uh, less necessary. I think back to RSS, which I've been a big RSS reader for a long time. And I remember, you know, when I first, you know, 10 years ago when I first discovered what RSS was and realizing I could have these 300 sources of information all delivered to me and thinking, by God, everyone's going to do this. And it turns out, no, actually, most people are not nerds like me. So I think the degree to which people are going to be nerds like the people in this room is going to be a big, big factor in how this evolves. We now turn to the audience. We have about 40 minutes for a discussion. I urge everyone, including the panelists, and most especially the moderator, to be concise. William. Thanks. So, um, hello, is this on? Is that on? Can we put the... Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, so over the long haul historically, there's a striking reciprocity between the stability of platforms and the stability of institutions. Institutions help to stabilize platforms. 
platforms have helped to stabilize uh, institutions. And and I guess with that, then, if we think of the institutional practices we've inherited, especially in domains of truth, you know, broadly spoken in the journalistic domain, or things like taste in the literary domain, we've had critics, we've had uh, codes of ethics for institutions, we've had a lot of a lot of things that have helped to stabilize the production of truth and taste in within certain parameters. With this turn, with this turn towards the latest uh, round of unstable platforms, those institutions are having problems holding on to their old practices. We're seeing a lot of new players enter the field, the bloggers and the, 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 the fanfic people. And what I've noticed in the, in the work of, of a number of our students here over the past few years is a really strong interest in things like problematizing notions of ethics or problematizing uh, notions of literacy. Really thinking a lot about the producers, the new the new group of producers who are entering these, these, these traditional practices, and of course the audiences or the readers. Uh, this has sort of come up in your comments as well. If the newspaper no longer comes, well, what does that mean? Do we have to you know, educate people to be more active readers? Do we have to talk with people about being more critical readers? With this shift from the old certainties of the institutions and their, their role as arbiter of taste and of truth, um, what does that mean that we have to do? What, what sh where should we be looking, not just in terms of the, the old world of journalists and novelists, and, but rather in terms of these newcomers to the field, and especially the readers, the people that are going to be engaging this big world, this big new world of data? Kathleen, uh, you answer that question. <laughs> It's a tiny question. I can do that. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, going to tilt this in the direction of the things that I've been thinking about most, which has to do with changes within the academy, um, not a, a set of institutions that really embraces change very easily um, with respect to a lot of these technologies and the shifts in platforms and the kinds of shifts in values that accompany those shifts that you're talking about. I mean, the argument that I've been making is that fundamentally for digital scholarly publishing to become an accepted practice broadly within the academy, the changes that need to take root are far less technological than they are social and institutional, mm -hmm. right? That we really need to think about what those digital technologies bring to the institution and how the institution needs to adapt itself to the technologies and adapt the technologies to its values. Um, Again, thinking about, I mean, you know, I, I'm remembering early writing around scholarly blogs, not on blogs, but about blogs, the, the infamous Ivan Tribble article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, in which it was argued that, you know, all scholarly bloggers were um, shallow and, uh, and, and shrill and presented themselves as unstable in ways that, you know, made them suspect as job candidates and therefore, you know, don't blog it's a terrible idea. Gradually, there's been a kind of growing sense that, okay, maybe that's an overstatement of the case. Um, and that, in fact, scholarly blogs do a lot of really significant work. You know, that, that they create audience, they create engagement, they get, they get a scholar's name out, um, they produce a kind of recognition for the work, they, they make inroads into the publishing community. A scholar who has a blog and who has a following, in fact, is much more likely to have a first book accepted by a university press than a scholar without a blog precisely because that press knows that the scholar has an audience at this point, right? So there's been a sort of gradual acceptance in certain sectors of the academy of the idea that blogging might not at least of necessity be a ridiculous practice, right? And 
I think it's, it's that kind of negotiation that we need to do much, much more of, to think about how these new platforms can actually serve purposes that we really need served, that we actually do need to create more public engagement for the kinds of work that we're doing, particularly at a moment where higher education, both institutions and supporting organizations, are being radically defunded at an alarming rate. We need ways to get the significance of the work that, it is, that we do within these walls outside the walls where it can be seen and where the voting public can say, well, you know, maybe all those professors are not just wasting their time in there. Maybe there is something significant that they're doing for society. So I think that, I mean, the, the, the institutions need to recognize the ways that these new forms, though scary, and though, you know, potentially opening up um, difficult dialogues with the surrounding culture can actually open up productive dialogues as well. And I think there's quickly from a journalism perspective, you, you know, the, the interplay between institutions and journalism is often, you know, based, uh, based around opposition. You know, the, the, the existence of a strong, uh, profitable, uh, economically comfortable and civically minded newspaper is a big deal to a state government that is going to have to pay attention to it when it decides to investigate that, that state government. And having, you know, while, while in many ways I think the weakening of traditional journalism institutions isn't a terrible thing, there is that element that having that strong, stable institution can, can be a very potent and very powerful thing. I, I do think, though, you know, there are going to be places where you know the the institution is going to, the institutions are going to become less stable i mean you know is it a good thing that uh you know rolling stone and spin are not the only outlets for music criticism that, that people pay attention to on a broad level you know i think probably so um but you also you also see when you have you know to continue that metaphor when you have the explosion of availability of new sources of something like music criticism you also see a recongealing of power around a pitchfork or any other you know, a site that ends up regathering the audience and i do think that you know the the fracturing of, of journalism institutions um, it, it has certainly happened but there is a natural tendency again because people you know people need to you know figure out what to type into their browser every day and they're probably going to have if they're like most news readers a relatively short list and that regathering of, of, of institutional power I think plays into that that internet institutional exchange over on this side hi thanks for having this I want to ask some provocative questions so I hope you'll accept these in that spirit. Um, if you take the principles that you want newspapers to adopt, how are you each individually adopting those as researchers and as people who are helping to move things forward? Uh, I'd like to ask if we are creating our own echo chamber and whether the echo chamber we're creating is a pathology model and we're really focusing a lot on what's broken and describing a lot of that and maybe not quite enough time on what's working or what's promising or what you hope you'll see people try. Because I do think that people look for leadership clues, and there are a lot of people who look and go, what do you want us to try? There are a lot of retired people. There are a lot of people between jobs. Perhaps if they get a signal, they'll start to try things because they know you'll look for it, and then you'll say this is valid or this is interesting or something. So maybe we can accelerate that. I want to ask if, because we're in MIT and it's an engineering school, we shouldn't be asking more questions about systems. So what's, what is journalism as a, as a system check, on a, a quality assurance check, on the relationship between institutions and individuals? Maybe that's a struggle we're going through, because institutions do make it harder to funnel individual ideas through the system if it doesn't match what the institution wants. 
So maybe there's a little interesting friction between what an institution says it stands for and then what happens when everything gets really fast because the digital world's not deliberative. The digital world may be a different animal. So I wanted to ask one other thing, which is where are the people, and maybe they're later on this week, who have created the transitions well? The word transition is a wonderful word because that means adaptation. That means recreating. That means taking a structure and restructure or a design and redesigning. Tom Fiedler did it, for example, at, at Miami. And he did it by pushing everybody in the deep end. One day he walked into his newsroom and said, you're all going to go digital. And everybody went, what? And he said, yeah, the older ones talk to the younger ones, younger ones talk to the older ones. You have skills, you'll share them, and just somehow it'll work out. And guess what? He was right. It was actually slowing it down that would have been a mistake. So I'm kind of hoping there will be other studies about the moments of peril where somebody got it right. Or maybe a lot of people got it right, and then maybe there's a pattern, and then we can start to work on those patterns. Because Josh was at a, another panel with somebody from the Boston Globe about a month ago. I was there too. I think there are people who are ready to try things, but if we stay in the pathology model of examining the multiple reasons why something won't work, I'm not sure that's the best way to help people who have the opportunity behind closed doors to go, maybe we should try this instead. So I, I hope you take that with, it's meant to be constructive, considered an op-ed. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, uh, very quick. Okay, that was four we questions. Have to, we have to I, be very brief, people. Four questions that I counted. I'll take a shot at two. Where's the quality assurance in engineering? One of the things that the lowering of barriers to entry for mass communication has meant is that people are watching the watchers. There has been, uh, one of the things that blogs have done is create a whole world of people, including me, since I write a media blog for the Boston Globe's website, um, who watch the media. And there are people who watch the people who watch the media. And that's quality assurance. The second one is where are the people who are, who are creating uh, transitions well? I think we all have our own examples. But remember, uh, for legacy media, these are businesses. Uh, there is a, a very large media institution where a, a, a very good friend of mine is, is uh, head of multimedia. And his instructions from his bosses are, try anything. If you fail, fail cheap. Um, and I do think there's a try anything attitude out there right now, as long as the failure is cheap. Over here. So this kind of goes into the concept of... Um, Can you hear? I, we can't hear you. So I have a very soft voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, this goes into the intimations of um, that there might be a permanence to the instability that we're in. And actually to even take that a step further, but a desire to be unstable. Um, and it, my question sort of rests on two popular... Um, popular phenomenon that you would have had to have experienced in order to understand the question. The first one is tvtropes.org. Do you guys know that? Mm -hmm. And then the second one is Scream 4. Have you guys seen that? The movie? I don't know. Okay. So I'll, I'll, just, I'll just tell the question. So, On the fate 
of narrative, how do you see the activity of TVTropes.org affecting, affecting future narrative production? Specifically, unraveling narratives through meta-analysis as, popular, as popularly evident in Scream 4, and the intentional instability of character, author, and audience in narrative. So can, can you give me like the 20-second version of Screen 4 so that I can make the connection? Yeah, basically it was that like, you know, you've seen all the other screams and you get the Scream overarch- 4. Scream 4. I was hearing S-C-R-E-E-N. Scream, right. and, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. now I get it. Yes. Scream 4. Got yes. it. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think that um, I'm more familiar. I've I, I got to confess I've seen none of the screams, but I'm familiar with t- tvtropes.org. And I think that having a, this codification uh, of the, the tropes in, on tvtropes.org. Um, f- for me, I would think of it as a, as a way to accelerate the kind of development of, tal- of talent in, in a narrative industry. And that instead of having to, you know, who, what's the, the, the giant book story, the, the screenwriting book that a lot of people, you know, how to, how to structure, you know, properly a, yeah. a scre- screenplay. You know, instead of the, the, the ways in which people would have to you know, develop their craft while being aware of the formats. Now you can burn a, a good long Saturday, uh, burning through that site, and as a result, you're that much more ready to to jump into creating something that either plays along with those tropes or is in opposition to those sorts sorts of tropes. And I, I, the main way I would think of it, and I'm not a scholar of TVTropes.org, but is is an accelerating force that that is going to both codify what is, what is already out there, but also encourage people to figure out how can I combine this and this? How can I create something that's a little bit different than that? If everybody else is doing X, how can I you know, do Y so it stands out and is a, you know, a, a more creative act? I don't know if that gets at your question there. Yeah, I, I, the, the only thing that I would add to that is that, I mean, we're seeing a growth in um, the number of writers of fan fiction who are going on to produce their own original text, that fan fiction becomes a, a, a place at which to begin um, for many authors who then kind of produce new narratives that grow out of that. Um, and I think that's, that's bound to happen in other, in other media forms as well, other than simply text. I guess my question was more about um, the audience being um, in the role of the character and the author simultaneous, and how that mixing of roles um, is a kind of instability, an intentional instability of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the, the greater awareness of the, uh, of the audience, of knowing that there is a story and that story has a structure and, and being, yeah, I, you know, sort of, you know, the, the way that, that t- television watchers interact with Lost in a different way than they interact with The Price is Right, right? And that, that they are aware that there is a larger superstructure and they are engaging in it in some sort of way, right? Mm-hmm. And possibly in the future that it would be much more of a rapid turnaround. So. Mm-hmm. You know, as opposed to what happened in Scream 4, where the reaction of the movie being produced created a whole forum of what the movie was going to be about, that films could also, films and TV and books and, and all kinds of media would take on the ability to transform themselves on the fly. Yeah, I, no, at I, that point, then what is storytelling and what is narrative? Right. I, mean, I think, to me, that gets back to what I had said earlier about how... Um, 
narratives becoming decreasingly contained and decreasingly completed, and it is able yeah. to to adjust on the fly. I mean, you know, you see shows that are now making inside jokes aimed purely at the fanfic community that is writing about those shows and making you know making internal references that are, are meant to communicate with certain segments of the audience and and able to, as you said, adjust uh, on a much shorter time frame. I I, I completely agree that I think that. Um, you know, it, I, I'm I'm sort of an optimist, you know, about a lot of things, which you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but you know, uh, you know, I think there seems to be a general acclaim that we're in a really good period for television right now, in part because um, a lot of people are both have the awareness of of what's been done before, but they also know that they can play with audience expectations in in ways that are based around having DVDs that are able to you know have a sort of an assumed collective uh, intelligence among the audience and the ability to see reactions in real time. And you have TV shows that are asking people to you know uh, tweet responses in real time, and then what are they going to do with that information? Next question. Let me again encourage everyone to concision. We have about 20 minutes. My question will build off of the previous question to some extent, which is I'm curious about examples that you've encountered where instability is actually has a productive dimension to it. And I was provoked to this question by that example of page number technology and one of the persistent bugs, which is when you get a new edition of the book, all the page numbers break and all the citations don't work anymore and how we've kind of worked around that. And there is a productive dimension. When you go to the wrong page, you may have a serendipitous encounter with an idea that you weren't in pursuit of at that moment. So just other examples that you've come across in your work of those sort of productive elements of instability. I, I would point to, I mean, coming back to blogging, which is the, the horse that I will continue to ride for a while, um, that, that the blog in its nonstop evolution and the fact that it has to continue to grow and change in order to be a living thing um, is, is precisely what makes it interesting and engaging. I mean, that, it, that the author can never really foreclose a question, but but has on some level to return to engage with comments, to rethink an uh, an issue, to re-engage with questions that that he or she may have thought over. Um, I, I think that instability, just temporally speaking, that sense of never being done, something that we're not at all used to, um, or haven't prior to this been used to in the writing process, I think has been really productive. Yeah, although I would claim that we actually have been used to it, um, only, I mean, the new media, the new platforms give us even more, uh, new, more possibilities to work in this way. And in this context, I'd like to um, mention something um, that is connected with the first question that was asked and add something to... Um, the elements that you mentioned. You mentioned institutions mm -hmm. and the other thing that you mentioned. Doesn't matter because, I mean, I think what she forgot and I think what has not yet been mentioned is um, people's minds. What needs to be changed um, is people's minds uh, and only then can institutions be changed. And actually, this is, I mean, what these new platforms offer us. But we don't use them. We don't use them, I think, quite generally. I mean, yes, individual people do use them, but the majority doesn't. Um, 
can I refer to YouTube? I think, I mean, what I've seen from YouTube were the traditional things. Uh, and YouTube is a nice platform for everybody to work freely. Um, but, I mean, what you get there is actually the traditional things. And what is necessary is to change people's minds, to change people's concepts, which take a long time. And that comes back to your earlier questions. Actually, I will talk about this in my paper tomorrow. The examples I give for that is actually uh, the change in history writing, the change to writing history with a view from the people, uh, the common people, rather than writing history only with regard to kings, um, prime ministers, and so on. I mean, that developed in the 1950s and 60s. Um, the Second World War was extremely influential. Um, people began to think about this in the, um, I mean, in the between the wars, um, and you could even refer to the First World War as helping uh, to bring about this fundamental change in people's minds and concepts. And similar things are necessary with regard to the new platforms, and they take time. I mean, and the usual thing is you've got new platforms and you use them in the ways that you are used to that you've learned, which is what, I mean, yes, the newspapers do, and most other people do, too. One, one quick addition to that that I can't resist. Uh, I've often thought of using this as a teaching device for, for media students, but if you look at the at least three different versions of the New York Times that exist today, the paper version, which is a, a, a phenomenal sort of uh, uh, end point of a, a, you know, nearly of a century and more of sort of newspaper design and presentation, and then at Times Reader, which is an attempt to create online a kind of equivalent visual of, of the print paper, which may, maybe not such a smart thing to do, but it's an interesting... And then finally, the, the Times Online, which is a radically different version of the New York Times. If you actually spend some time studying these three different sort of incarnations of the Times, you would have in a, a, a kind of capsule form uh, the process of media transition. Uh, and, the, and, and, and an instance of a major... Printing, a major sort of pre-digital institution attempting to uh, accommodate uh, the, new, the new and especially attempting to find out in what ways uh, new platforms create new, for, new affordances that had not existed in the earlier form. Uh, it's a very traditional example, but I think it's a powerful one. I'll just say one, one last thing. The, I think it's interesting. This is a result of both, both business model questions and, and, and technology, but one thing that, that online media does uh, much more aggressively than traditional media does is tell you what to do next. When you watch a video on YouTube, they're right next to it. Here's, there's 15 other videos. Take your pick. Um, when you uh, read a Wikipedia entry, um, not, it's not only telling, you know, there are links right there. I mean, who hasn't lost hours in, well, maybe, maybe it's just me, I don't know. Who hasn't lost hours going down rabbit holes in Wikipedia? And there is something about the, the, the existence of, of, a media that, of a medium that is pushing you to consume more media and that is trying to direct that action that I think uh, gets to what you were saying before about something that could be, could be uh, 
conceived of as an instability. You're constantly pushing people in various directions. But at the same time, there are really positive things that can come out of that from a discovery point of view in a way that, you know, if you're reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, it's not as if, you know, you're necessarily going to be flitting around and, you know, having the same exploratory experience. Yes. I've appreciated the introduction of facticity into the conversation as a cultural formation that, in which genres and institutions and modes of production are all uh, oriented towards or away from the fact. When that happens, the catalyst of the fact puts different narrative forms in conversation with each other, fact and fiction, journalism and history and novels and so forth. So I'm wondering if we can press, uh, add one more additional force uh, into what is happening with the fate of narrative question, and that is, um, what's the impact of reading and reception and information seeking as narrative forms in themselves? And I can think of at least three ways, and I'm sure there are more, in which that's the case. We're all familiar with the marketing, advertising, uh, creation of youth or your information seeking, so let's put that to the side. Uh, in U.S. court cases, there have already been efforts to try to find out which newspaper articles you've been reading. Um, uh, that might have fed into some public claim that you make when people are unhappy with those public claims. Uh, and we know that the um, intelligence establishment is working very hard on trying to figure out how to protect against inference attacks. That is, your ability to reach a politically or militarily unwelcome conclusion on the basis of your access to facts to which you legally have the right of access. So there, and under uh, current law, and this is true pretty much around the world, intention and, um, intention and alleged intention are enough to make you uh, criminally suspect under anti-terrorism laws and so forth. So your information-seeking trail generates a narrative that is interpreted by others as um, a set of as an inferential train, and they're uh, leading to to their conclusions. Those are at least just three examples. But how? So two um, things. One is, uh, do you know of research that treats those things as narrative forms? I'm less familiar with with actual research on that than my own speculations. And two, how have reading, reception, and information seeking as narrative forms affected the ways in which more uh, traditional narrative uh, pro producers like journalists are doing their work? I'll throw out a, uh, an additional model that I think may, might fit in with what you're talking about. Um, when you look at uh, e-books on the Kindle and the ability of individual Kindle users to highlight specific sections, and then the ways in which those highlights are then shared with other users in a way that... To great annoyance. I'm, I'm sorry? To great annoyance. Oh, well, maybe, or to great use, depending on how you look at it. Well, you can shut it off. You can, you can shut it off. There you go. Um, um, you can use the Sony reader, whatever. Um, uh, I think that that... You're, you're absolutely right that the, the, the act of reading is much more public act, both in the sense that there are any number of platforms that essentially ask you to share your reading, in the sense that if you are a link-centric tweeter, you are fundamentally saying, here's a story I have read, here it is, I'm sharing it with other people, but that is at least a, a tacit statement that, oh, by the way, I've consumed this. And of course, there is, you know, somewhere on a Wikipedia server, there's an enormous database of everything that I've ever read, and, you know, the New York Times, you know, has that sort of information about me. Um, you know, and there are a variety of legal issues, as you say, about, about you know, who has access to that kind of information. But I, I do think, though, that um, the act of reading as an act of creation, an act of creativity that is shared with others, is something that a lot of... Um, 
a lot of, is really sort of intrinsic to the internet because I think a lot of the a lot of the the business models and the approaches of a lot of companies are really based around making those trails public, both in for reading and for other activity, because they can ge- that generates a lot of data that can be useful for business reasons mm-hmm. as well as for the kinds of things that you're talking about. And the fact and the fact that these companies that that, that Joshua points out have generated it have met with a huge demand. Um, I think demonstrates that people do want. Um, to follow the reading trails of others. Some of us out of curiosity and because I would follow Joshua on Twitter and I, 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 he points out interesting things. And some people for malicious, nefarious reasons in the shadows that we don't know. I wish I knew more about your first question and the legalities. I, I, I'm not aware of any scholarship. I don't know if others are. No, I mean, the, the closest thing that I can think of off the top of my head is Siva Vajanathan's new book on the Googleization of everything, which focuses in some part on Google's amalgamation of all of that data on us um, that we, we are not always aware that they've got and the effects that it has on our uses of Google products. I mean, that, that as we search, we're getting specifically tailored results um, based on prior information-seeking activity rather than anything that approaches neutral assessment of the information that's out there. But that's, that's all I'm able to think of off the top of my head. question which also goes into the direction of reception. I mean, the way we've spoken about narrative, I think, is mostly about how to construct a story, how an author constructs a story, but especially the example that you gave um, of uh, how the um, killing of um, Osama bin Laden was covered. I think that brings to me also up the question up of how users um, have a concept of narrative in how they reassemble those pieces of information, all those uh, tweets from people who were supposedly in the area when it happened and who commented in real time, different sources I think the way that those uh, pieces of data are reassembled, they often follow a rather conventional sense of narrative, a dramatic arc uh, for people how they make sense of all this data, actually, the way they make a story out of it. So I was wondering um, whether uh, your thoughts about how your thoughts about that were. Joshua mentioned this earlier, and it's something I, I really believe strongly in. Twitter, Facebook, we create the narrative by who we choose to follow and how we choose to follow them. Sometimes the narrative is tedious and unnecessary, like a sports writer tweeting what happened in every inning of a baseball game that I'm watching. Um, I, I, I could tell you quickly the, the moment of epiphany for me, the, uh, the day the scales fell from my eyes. I'd been fooling with Twitter for a while, six months, eight months, and I was trying to figure out, what good is this? What good is this? Um, following people, unfollowing people, blah, 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 blah. Uh, about a year ago, uh, Saturday afternoon, I sat down to watch a hockey game. I picked up my phone. I looked at Twitter, and it's uh, uh, both the Boston Globe and one fellow who sits at his kitchen table in Boston who I used to work with and does a very good local website tweeted that the main pipe bringing drinking water to Boston had burst. And it, local people remember that. And we were all under boil water order. Well, I, I remember, first thing I did was pour out the wa- glass of water I had next to me. Um, but now I was focused on Twitter. The Globe was able to create, w- to give you news from the reporters on scene, but what this other site called Universal Hub 
had it's 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 hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of followers all across eastern Massachusetts tweeting in information or questions. Someone fairly quickly tweeted tweeted, I work in a restaurant. Can we use the soda machines? And someone in government saw that and tweeted, no. <laughs> okay. Um, and through the course of an afternoon, people were tweeting photos of empty supermarket shelves of bottled water, you know, from the Stop and Shop in Roslindale. Through the course of an afternoon, you built a narrative, mm -hmm. depending on what you were following, so that by the time I could see the 6 o'clock or 11 o'clock news or read the next morning's paper, I already knew the narrative. Um, well, and that's, I think that's very rich. But I think that's only partly responsive to the heart of the question that was posed, which is essentially there are ideas of narrative that are embedded in our brains because we've grown up in cultures that tell right. stories in certain ways uh, so that when people create new narratives, they're really sort of following the old patterns. What? Uh, well, quick response, panelists. I know this is up all of your alleys. Well, I, th I think I think you're absolutely right that there is something very powerful about about that 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 TVTropes.org idea of there being a certain set number of stories, and and you know the, the, there's there's something really true and human about that. I I would push back a little bit to say though that those are often those are often coming into play when you're seeing a reconstruction of a narrative after the fact. You know, when, when we're talking about the Osama thing or whatever else, you are seeing that. But when you think about someone who is spending 20 minutes re watching Twitter, they're seeing an extremely fractured uh, version of reality. Even if there is a big event, even if, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden has just been shot and that is 90% of what's going on on their stream, even in that moment of, you know, communal unity, um, there's still going to be some guy who's tweeting from the Red Sox game and there's right. still going to be somebody who just, you know, posting a link to their new record review and there's still going to be this wildly varied, um, you know, and, and, you know, almost schizophrenic sort of view of here, here's a, an, a ever, a, an ever always updating stream of what's going on and when you think of if you think of that unconstructed narrative constructed by previous actions of deciding who you're following but not constructed in the moment um, and the fact that you know if you're using Twitter you're you've accepted that you're you're okay with that that's what you've signed up for uh, or if you look at a Facebook news feed or if you look at you know your inbox as email newsletters you know trickle in in the morning these are all ways in which the traditional narrative idea as powerful as it is for telling something contained um, I think it's shown that you know the digital technology has enabled us to you know adjust to a kind of story that that isn't that I, yeah. I I just want to add to this very quickly um, that the Osama case in particular um, highlights something that's happening that's sort of reflecting back into the, the non-Twitter universe as well, the ways that conventional stories get told. That evening, I believe, set a speed record for the amount of time it took to get from the story to the story of the story, right? That the New York Times posted almost contemporaneously with the story that Osama had been killed, the story of how the leak got out. And that transformation in thinking about the, the sort of meta layer of narrative, I think, um, it is vastly accelerated with this new form. Uh, it's, I mean, it's actually the first time that I'd like to disagree with Josh and ask him the question how, sh sh I mean, 
In which way have we been enabled to do that? Um, what I would say in contradiction is, and that's also an answer to your question, um, that of course, I mean, we use the mental schema, the concepts that we know in order to make sense of those things. And it's nothing new that the new media um, have taught us. Not at all, because otherwise, I mean, if it was completely new, I think we would still be struggling to come to terms with Twitter and things like that. Uh, the point is simply, I mean, that... Um, we use them in traditional ways, namely by um, giving those fragments um, meaningful context. I, I think I think that's that's true. But I would say though that I a I think there are lots of people for whom they are still making sense of Twitter, and for whom the way in which Twitter presents its content is deeply disturbing. And there are lots of people for whom it is disorienting and, and almost morally troubling at a fundamental <laughs> level. Um, and I would say, while it's certainly true that we've always well, been able to... the constraints that it imposes on, on, the, on, on the amount of comment you can make is sure. itself disturbing. Sure. Um, I would say, though, that you know, it, let's, let's imagine a, a radio station that was um, just a string of 15-second comments on a wild variety of issues. You know, that is something that would, seem, would have seemed very bizarre not too long ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that, you know, in most of our other forms of media, um, there, are, there is a greater expectation of narrativity, that if you start reading a newspaper story, that newspaper story is going to have a certain arc, and then it's going to come to an end. If you watch a half-hour sitcom, it's going to follow a given path. And I think the fact, I, I do think that while you're absolutely right, I think that Twitter and other sorts of formats does accelerate our acceptance of the fracturing um, and, and enables us to, to interact with it in a way that um, still seems uncomfortable to a lot of people and would have seemed more uncomfortable um, 20 years ago, let's say. But Thank you very much. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. A little bit indecisive, I fear, but the problems are not <laughs> easily solved. I want to thank the panelists and thank the audience. Thank you.